We're going to be in James chapter 4, verse 11, through James chapter 5, verse 6 this morning. And so if you would turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have one, I have one in the back that you can follow along with. Uh, what we'll do this morning, our message will come directly from this text. There will be some connections to some other passages as well. Uh, first, uh, we will pray, and then we will read uh, James 4, 11 through 5, 6. And Father God, we do uh, come to you this morning asking uh, for more grace, more grace than you've already given us, undeserved, unearned personal favor, Lord. We ask that you would teach us, guide us, enable us, encourage us, convict us uh, by your word this morning. Pray that you would have your way, that you would remove uh, distractions from each one of us, that you would remove anything that uh, is delivered from me that is not of you. I pray, Lord, that we get the aim of James in this passage across to our hearts and ultimately the aim of you, Lord, the author of this passage. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. James 4, beginning in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are, are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, what, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the unfailing, life-changing word of the Lord for us this morning. God opposes the proud, and He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. It's what we just saw in last week's passage. Pride asks this question of the Lord. What must I do to be saved? It's a prideful statement. What must I do to be saved? Humility asks this question instead. How can a depraved man, a depraved woman, a sinful man, a sinful woman, a sinful person such as I am, be accepted by a holy and righteous God? James has shown us in chapter 4, verse 10, that the distinguishing mark of the person of genuine faith is humility. 
James now reveals three practical ways in this text in which um, the call to humility is violated and pride then is revealed. First, humility is violated and pride is revealed through the defaming of others, boasting in our own human judgments. Second, humility is violated and pride is revealed through boasting in human will. And finally, in the final section, humility is violated and pride is revealed through oppressing others for personal, worldly gain, boasting in our own earthly treasures. So you might think, uh, as you've listened to me and Christians who are outside of the Reformed tradition might think this, having heard me preach and others like me, that I have a low view of humanity. But I really don't. I really have just a high biblical view of God, His nature, His character, and a high, realistic, biblical view of humankind, of our fallenness, of our character, and of our nature. So I would say to you this morning, if any one of you takes offense to what I am about to say about your nature and about my nature, about our nature collectively, It's okay, you can make your apologies to God later. This morning, I want to preach to you the pride-crushing gospel. The gospel is a pride-crushing message, and should be. So from our text this morning, what I'm going to do in all of these places, and this may take me a while, so I hope that I land the plane well this morning, uh, is that I want to first look at the character and the nature of God in each section that we look at. And then we will look at the depravity of humankind. And then we will look at the amazing grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, we will look at the response of the genuine born-again believer in Jesus. As we said, the genuine uh, faith, the mark of genuine faith is humility. And I would stand here and say this to you, and I've probably said it a million times in a million different ways over the years, that genuine faith cannot be expected as a response to preaching that does not speak about the nature of God, does not speak about the depravity of man, the atoning death of Jesus Christ for sin, and the humble response of repentance and faith. And if in your church experience this is not the message you received, You haven't received the full gospel of Jesus Christ, the full message, the life-changing gospel, the pride-crushing gospel of Jesus Christ. And any preaching otherwise is actually done in vain. Let's look closely at verses 11 and 12 together. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, first, let us look at in this section at the nature and the character of God. So I want to look at the first part of verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge. There is only one God. And God cannot be separated from any uh, part of his character, any part of his nature at any time. He is indivisible. He is holy. He is perfect. He is complete. 
Just like Israel said in, in Deuteronomy 6, for the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The indivisible God who is the creator of all things is altogether righteous. We must first understand who God is. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne, the psalmist says in Psalm 97. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That is the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I will read it again. God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatever comes to pass. So you see there is but one righteous lawgiver, one judge whose judgments are true. Isaiah 33 says this, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. So now I want us to look at the nature of humankind. Let us look at the end of verse 12 and look at the question that James poses to them. But who are you to judge your neighbor? In other words, he might be saying this, who do you think you are? He's not asking them about this. He's not saying that we are not to judge and discern what sinful behavior is in the church. We are to do that. He's not saying that. This is about pronouncing a lasting decree upon someone, upon a brother or a sister in the Lord, supposing that by our judgments we can either save them or we can condemn them. This is the question that James poses. He says, are you prideful enough to think that you can make a decree, that you can pronounce a sentence and a punishment and unchangeably ordain anything that should ever come to pass? Have you made yourself equal with God? That is the, ultimately the question he says here. Back to verse 11. And the first part of it. Do not speak evil against uh, one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. See, as he looks here, he says, what do you think about other people? First, what do you think about who you are? And then, what do you think about others? James warns the church, don't make slanderous pronouncements against one another. He's talking about slander. And I would ask this. He might be asking something similar to this. Are you all-knowing? And this makes me think of what James said in the earlier chapters when he said, you know, with our mouths we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. How many times have you said this in your life? And I said this to myself this week when I was studying this passage, that this is something that was sharply convicting. Because I've said this sentence over and over. I'll be the judge of that. This passage reveals what mankind thinks about the law of God. I remember when I was a kid, my sister and I both uh, heard this phrase probably at least once a day, if not more than that. And that was this phrase, I know better. I know better. Now you could put the truth, the plain truth, in my grandmother's face. 
And her prideful heart would say to us, I know better. I know better. Well, you know, not to be too hard on her, she inherited that. Uh, just as I did and just as you did from Adam and Eve, right? Adam and Eve had this same problem, and it has been handed down to all of us. Remember what the serpent says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The serpent said, you eat this, and you too can say, God, I know better. I know better. I can discern and judge between good and evil. I know better. Well, the nature of the unregenerated human here is to slander and judge our neighbor. It is to circumvent the law of God and to usurp the authority of God. You know, think about this. I will not have him rule over me. I heard... And my wife says this sometimes, and you know, and I'm guilty of it as well, and I heard others say it this morning too in a joking sort of manner. But don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me what to do. Where does that phrase come from? It's not a, it's not a humble phrase, is it? it? It's a phrase of pride. I will be the judge of that. I will not have him rule over me. This is the fallen state of human Kind, But we must remember this. There is only one lawgiver and judge. Only one. God is the only judge because it is only God who has the power to save or destroy sinners. Notice the rest of the first part of verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy God is the only right judge because He is the only one who can save and destroy. To do otherwise is to try to usurp His authority, isn't it? And that's what James is really after here. Who do you think you are? Because he, he ends that with, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Who do you think you are? Have you elevated yourself above the law of God? Have you elevated yourself above God Himself? Who are you? Who are you? Do you think you know better? Let's look at verses 13 through 16. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So again, in this section, I want to look first at the nature of God. Let's look a little closer at verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. That is the nature of God. If the Lord wills. You see, God is the only sovereign one. God is eternal. God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And he's pointing this out to us so that we might see who we really are. Psalm 139, verse 16 sums this up well to me. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God is so sovereign over salvation, 
He's sovereign over every day, every moment, every minute that we live. It is God's will that we are here in this moment, in this time. You might have gotten in your car and driven here, but it is the will of God that got you in your car and got you here. It is the sovereign will of God that brought you here today. And it is only by the will of God alone that you will even get home today. The Scripture says that why even the hairs on your head are numbered. Well, in my case, uh, uh, their days were numbered. But the hairs on your head, even them, they are numbered. And James poses a question in verse 14, right? What is your life? You cannot even add a minute to your lifespan. You are in the sovereign will of God. You can't add a minute to your lifespan. You're but a vapor. And yet, your mouth boasts of great things. Proverbs 69 says that the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. But humankind, aren't we unwilling to submit to God? Humans long to be sovereign over their own thing. To say, my will be done. We long to be sovereign in such a way that the Scriptures in Romans tells us that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Because to seek after God is to submit to His will. To seek after Him means to submit. And I can tell you that I know all of you and I know myself, and so we're all in the same boat, so this is not me saying anything against you. But submission does not come easy for any one of us. Submission does not come easy at all. I always long to say, my will be done. My will be done. I remember when I was a kid, my two of my brothers, my brothers would, and I would fight and bicker and all that sort of stuff. And after I got older, about 16 or 17, I could, I could pretty much whip the older one and the younger one, both, right? And uh, we'd get in an argument or a discussion or whatever, and I would win. And they would say, I don't know how you do that. I said, because I win. That's, that's what I do. I just win. That's my motto. My motto is I win. What an arrogant thing, right? But isn't that, isn't that, who, isn't that who we are sometimes when we approach God? My will be done. I know your word tells me I ought to do this. But I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to risk it. I know better. My will be done, right? It is an arrogant and willful heart that says, again, what must I do to be saved? Because what you're saying there is, what can I muster up in my will that would make me worthy of salvation? How can I earn it? What must I do to earn my salvation? Well, you know, the disciples, they, they posed that question to Jesus. They said, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. It is impossible. I don't know about you, but in, in my own human pride, when somebody tells me something is impossible, I say, watch me. Right? The will, my, my human will comes out. Tell me it's impossible. Watch me. I'll, I'll do everything I can to make that happen. I'll show you. Again, it's back to my will be done, right? 
Well, the God who is sovereign over salvation and judgment is sovereign over every day, over every minute, over every human life. And James says, to boast about your comings and goings without considering the will of God is to ignore God's will at best, to be ignoring His will, because we, we have enough in His Word to tell us and teach us what His will is for us. Like in the most simple terms, what I said this morning is that the will of God for us is that we be thankful for everything in all circumstances in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's what the Word says. That's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus is to be thankful in all circumstances. Well, as tough as that is, right? We say, I don't want to be thankful in this circumstances. This circumstance is hard. This circumstances can't be from God. This circumstance can't be what He wants for me. Well, He brought it to you. And if God is sovereign over every moment and every time and every person, what has come to you is in the will of God. What has come to your life today is in the will of God. What a prideful thing and who we are. We are prideful, aren't we, in those moments? God has brought us something we don't desire. And we say, that can't be the will of God. It is the will of God if you believe that God is sovereign over all things and over every moment and every person and every uh, situation that comes into your life. And then we hear that scripture that says, give thanks in all circumstances. This is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. So to boast about your comings and goings is to ignore the will of God at best and at the worst. It is just plain arrogance. Plain arrogance. Well, we say this, and maybe subtly, arrogantly, in our, in our lives and the way we do when we, we don't submit to the Lord and His will. Um, my will be done. I am a self-made man. I am the captain of my own ship. I am the king of all I survey. Well, an unsubmissive will is an extension, I believe, of an unconverted heart. Ultimately, an unsubmissive will is an extension of an unconverted heart for a person who would not submit to the will of God in a saving way. They won't come to Him for salvation. It is evidence of an unconverted heart. For us who are in Christ Jesus, our unsubmissive will is an extension of that which is left in us, that remnant of sin and willfulness that is in our hearts. And I would pray to God and hope that you do too, that God would remove that unwillingness to submit, that unwilling heart, that remnant of sin that is still uh, nagging. I hope it nags you. Does it nag you? Does the remnant of sin in your heart just nag at you? Does it bother you? Does it wake you up sometimes at night? It does me sometimes. I wake up in the middle of the night knowing I have this nagging place in my heart where I just will not let go. Again, I'm I'm struggling with that will, right? My will be done. It's it's a position of pride. So James so far has posed two questions. Who do you think you are and what is your life? Let's look at 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Behold, the wages of the laborers who, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the days of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, I want to look at this section and look at the nature and the character of God. And I want us to first remember uh, from our earlier study in, in James 1, verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The world and all that is in it belongs to God. When you listen to the psalmist in Psalm 50, he says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. In the American church, we've become lethargic, I think, in the things of the Lord, because we've lived as the worldly person James is speaking of here in verse 5 living in luxury and in self-indulgence, laying up treasures in the last days. Listen to what the Lord says in Revelation 3 of those who oppress others to get ahead, those who store up treasures on earth, those who live within the philosophy of the world, and those who do so while claiming to be in Christ. Let us turn to Revelation chapter 3. And I want to begin in verse uh, 15. Revelation 3, verse 15. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Who are you? What is your life? Is your treasure self-indulgent luxury? Have you been lulled to sleep by our past prosperity? When we look at God, at the nature of God and the creator of all things, the one who is the only right and true judge, the taker and the giver of life, the owner of every moment and time, and the possessor of every good and every perfect gift, and we look at that against the backdrop of our human nature, we who boast in evil things, we who are by nature those who invent evil, um, we condemn others also for the things of which we ourselves are guilty of or have been in the past, thinking that salvation somehow belongs to what we can contribute to God and that we can contribute something to God that He does not already possess, thinking that He got a great deal when He got you and He got me, knowing that no one seeks for God, no, not one, and knowing that we are unable to submit and unwilling to submit to God. What happens now? We are humbled before God. I wanted to tie this all back to last week's message when he says, humble yourselves before God. Where does humility come from? It comes from the backdrop of looking at the character and nature and holiness of God and then looking at ourselves rightly according to the Scripture, seeing ourselves according to what God's Word says about us, and looking at those two things side by side, 
When we look at those two things side by side, we can't help, I hope, but fall on our face and be humbled before God. The true gospel confronts our true nature, doesn't it? If we hear the true gospel, the true gospel confronts us. The true gospel confronts our true nature. The true gospel is a pride-crushing message and should be. Because salvation belongs to whom? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord, to Him and Him alone. The gospel is a pride-crushing message. I know that I used to say this, that when I got saved, I got, I got crushed. I felt the Lord crush me, destroy me, turn my life on its head. I felt the soul-crushing, pride-crushing truth that, Jeff, you're not as much as you think you are. If you took a realistic look at who I am and you take a realistic look at who you are, you are not me, God would say. And you are deserving of every punishment that I could mete out for that sin. You're deserving of that. So as the true gospel confronts our nature and humbles us, crushes and destroys our pride, we can ask this question, how can a depraved, sinful person such as me be accepted by a holy and righteous God? And we come to the answer, grace, only grace. It is grace and only grace. It is because of God's mercy that God sent His Son. If we look at John chapter 1, verse 14 through 17, He sent His Son because of mercy, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore a witness about Him and cried out, This is of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. For from the fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace came to us through Jesus Christ because of the mercy and the love of God. God was merciful and loving to this rebellious, sinful, self-seeking person who was not willing to submit to Him. And while I was unwilling... Look at what Paul says in Romans 5. But God chose His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When I was unwilling, when it was my will be done, when I was only willing to sin, it's all I wanted for my will was to sin, was to do what I wanted to do. I will not have this man rule over me. But God sent His Son in Christ Jesus to die for my sin, and He made me willing. That's the point. God makes us willing. He made us willing. We who are incapable, that's love. That's mercy. And you, you've got to be humbled by that statement. And you say, how can a sinful person like me be in relationship with a holy and righteous God? And you can only come to the conclusion, it's grace. It's God's grace. And it's not sloppy grace, is it? It's amazing grace. It should fill your heart with joy. 
my friends, that God is so gracious and kind. Fill your heart with joy and yet crush your pride at the same time. Now, instead of asking, what must we do to be saved? What does the Christian, the one who's been humbled by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, ask? He asks this instead. She asks this instead. What must I do now that I am saved? Not what must I do to earn or get my salvation, because that's all of grace. But, but James has been talking chapter after chapter here about behavior. About behavior that is genuinely revealing of who you are in faith, right? Genuine faith. So now, when we are humbled by the gospel, the Christian asks this, now that I am saved, what must I do? Not what must I do to earn anything, but what must I do to glorify you, God? What must I do to show a thankful heart towards you? What must I show, what must I do now to show that my faith is indeed genuine? that I have laid myself down and submitted to you, and I want you to get all the glory and all the praise. I, I don't want anything for myself anymore. I want it all for you. What must I do now that I am saved? And I think that, first of all, we pray. We pray acknowledging our estate, our personal position in relation to God. And how do we do so? The most famous prayer of all time. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray that honestly is a submitted person, isn't it? It's a person who knows their position. They know their position in God, that God is holy and right and true, and I am but a beggar coming for a crumb. Lord, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes as Christians, we think it's okay to have God's will be done in heaven, but I'll handle things from here, right? Uh, that's our pride. That's the stuff that's left over. I'll handle things here, you know. You got it up there. I get that. And you've got the overall scheme of things going on, but I'm going to handle my day-to-day -day life. The submitted person says, no, Lord. Uh, I want your will to be done in everything I do. I want your will to be done in how I raise my kids. I want your will to be done in, in what I do in church. I want your will to be done for how I work and the, the effort I make and all of those things. Secondly, aside from prayer, is we have a right relationship with the world and the treasures. That we look at the world and we look at its treasures, we look at them, and realize that we need humble dependence upon God, who is the giver of all good and perfect gifts. As Matthew 6 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I want to close us this morning with words from the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. It's a pretty simple way to live, isn't it? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Who do you think you are, O oh man? What is your life? Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. I think we need to be awakened from our slumber of self-indulgence and sleepwalking through life. We need to repent 
again and believe the gospel, the life-changing, pride-crushing gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father God, we praise and thank you for your word. Pray that you would be enable us to live according to it, that you would give us submissive hearts, pliable hearts. We might be those who see our position, understand your goodness, your greatness, that we would be humbled by grace in the Lord Jesus, that we would walk in the truths now, that we would ask you, Lord, what must I do to glorify you now that I am saved? Now that you have done all the work to get to me, what must I do that glorifies you, Lord? Help us all, Lord, to be in his will. In Jesus' name, amen.